I was taken to notice back a couple of weeks ago that there was a sign outside of the Mid-Hudson Civic Center that said that the Price is Right was going to be holding a live recording at the, uh, the, you know, the Civic Center there, and it flooded my mind with um, childhood memories of watching Bob Barker tell everyone that they should have their pets spayed and neutered and, and all the rest, you know, and... I mean, I think just about everyone that lives in the United States, maybe even in the world, is familiar with The Price is Right. The Price is Right is the longest-running network television series in United States TV history. It has aired over 8,000 episodes, <laughs> and it is known by virtually everyone. And the thing about The Price is Right that, um, you know, that stands out and probably has been the, the key to its success is the fact that it's a, it's a program of rewards based upon choices. And I think any one of us that has ever watched an episode of it, we get drawn into the emotion of watching these contestants make their choices. You know, and sometimes before them is held up a brand new car, you know. But they have to choose whether or not they want the car or if they want to wait to see what's behind door number two to see if it might be better than a car, you know. And you get emotionally pulled in as you watch and you say, no, take the car. You know, don't take the couch. You don't want the couch. Get the car, you know. And, and then they choose and we go, oh, or yeah, you know, because we, we can relate to that feeling of making choices and then having to live with the consequences of those choices, whether they're good or bad. And as we are in Genesis chapter 3, we're in a section of scripture that's dealing with the fall of humanity. And what we get to look into as we read in this text is we see the window into the choice that was made by the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and then the consequences that came upon them and then have rippled down through the generations of humanity, even now into the present day in which we live feeling those things. And God had put them in a paradise, and he gave them a choice, and he gave them a command. And he said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then along comes a serpent who is subtle, who is wise, who is deceptive, and he lies to them. And he says to them that you will not surely die, but in the day you eat of it, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. And there was just enough lie mixed in with the promise that he made that it was completely dishonest. And when they partook, Eve first, and then giving it to her husband, Adam, they did become gods, but not in the context to which they were promised, but rather they became gods unto themselves. And they were effectively enclosed into the prison of self and they became immediately self-centered and self-aware and self-absorbed. And that became the condition of that first man and women, woman. And we have felt and we do experience the consequences of the choice that they made in that day when they decided to rebel from the commandment of God. And so where we find ourselves here now in chapter 3, where we pick up, is we find ourselves in the middle of the very first day of reckoning, where God came into the situation, and he is sorting out everything that happened between Adam, Eve, and the serpent. He's exposing the actions, the intentions, and the motives. He's uncovering everything that was done, and then he's giving sentence 
concerning those actions and telling them what's going to take place in the future now because they have done this. And so before we move in, we left off right around verse 22, but before we get into chapter 4 and we see what begins to happen in the successive generations, there's a few things I'd like to just bring out and by way of closing observations of chapter 3. What we've seen with Adam and Eve is we have seen the first ever attempt at man-made religion. We were told early on that as soon as that they recognized that they were naked, that they sewed together fig leaves and that they made themselves coverings and then they hid themselves in the garden. And what those fig leaves represent for Adam and Eve is the first attempt to cover their own sin and then to forge their own terms of relationship with God as they sought to just blend in with the garden. It's man-made religion conceived in the heart of a fallen man. And the best that religion, that man-made religion, can ever do is present humans' best efforts to try to reconcile with a holy God. And that's the definition of religion. If anyone ever asks you what religion is, that's what it is. It's man attempting to bridge the gap to God through his actions or through his devotion or through some work or, or by keeping some ritual or some... Uh, uh, command in some way are working. I remember one of the first books that I ever read as a new believer. Um, I found it on the bookshelf of a Christian that I knew. It was called The Parables of Jesus. And that just seemed simple enough to me as a new believer to understand <laughs> in my naivety. So I, I asked if I could borrow it. And I remember reading in the introduction uh, to that, the author of the book gave a description of the difference between Christianity and every other religion. And, and he just simply said that the difference between the two is that religion is man's best attempt to try to reconcile with God, whereas Christianity is God's attempt to try to reconcile with man. And there's a world of difference between the two. Because when it's man trying to reconcile with God, we make the terms and we decide what it is that's going to make God accept us. But when God decides it, he's the one that sets the terms and he's the one that initiates and brings forth the reconciliation or the terms of reconciliation. And so we have Adam and Eve sewing together fig leaves and seeking to cover their own sin in the whole thing. And God's answer to that is that he first gets to the bottom of the issue of what's gone wrong in the relationship and then God provides his own covering for Adam and Eve, and it involves an innocent substitute and the shedding of blood. As God takes a lamb, and for the first time, Adam and Eve realize what death is as they watch God himself take an innocent and perfect spotless lamb and sacrifice it there, watching its blood flow out and the life leave this creature and then its skins, its clothes, then being given to Adam and Eve as a covering. And to them, they understand full well exactly what God is doing. That God is placing the punishment for their sin upon the innocent lamb and then taking the lamb's covering and giving it to them. A perfect picture of what God would one day do through the lamb of God, his son Jesus on the cross, in bridging the gap that was created through sin to reconcile a holy God and a fallen creation back to himself. And so God initiates by bringing forth a lamb. Now, I'm certain... 
that the fig leaf clothing that Adam and Eve made was much more attractive than the lamb, you know, drawers. I mean, what did it look like? A diaper. You know, I just picture like this lamb underwear, you know, that, that they had on there, you know, shag, 1970s style, you know, the whole thing. And I'm certain that, that part of them was like, you know, we did pretty good with those fig leaves. You know, that was designer. That looked pretty good. But the difference between the two, no matter how attractive or how effective those fig leaves were, is that one was provided by man and the other one was provided by God. And it was the one that was provided by God that was acceptable to God and it was accepted by Adam and Eve. And thus, their religion was nothing before God. It was God's way and God's provision that brought reconciliation between the two of them. And so we saw that in chapter 3. We also uh, saw in chapter 3 last week, we looked at the curse. The, the conditions that would follow in their experience now that they have sinned and fallen from God. And what I want to say by way of closure to all of that uh, as we move on is that the primary intent behind the curse and the conditions that the curse brought on were to drive man back into a relationship with God. The terms of the curse were a gift and a grace. To the woman, God said that he would multiply her sorrow in motherhood. To the man, he said that he would have sorrow and sweat and suffering in his role as a provider and a producer in what God had given him to do, but that it wouldn't be easy for him. And those things were not punitive by God, meaning that a punishment was being given out because of what they did, but rather they were provisional. It was the providence of God. You say, well, how so? Because what God did with the conditions of the curse is that he put both the male and the female in a situation where their own strength would be insufficient to do what it was that they would have to do on planet Earth. That if they would seek to rely upon their own resources, upon their own strength, their own abilities, if they would have to find comfort in themselves through the difficulties of what was to come, that they would find that they were unable to do those things. And what that would then produce is that it would drive them to search for the things that they needed that were outside of themselves. And that in searching for those things, they would find them in the only place where they can be found, and that is in the person of God himself. And so the terms of the curse were given as a grace to drive man back into a presence of God, that to make them realize that they would need to depend on him for all. Now, prior to the fall, it was natural for man to rely upon God. Man depended upon God for everything. But after the fall, it became natural for man to rely upon himself, to be self-sufficient, to not depend on anybody else, but to figure it out and do it himself. And so God in his grace put us in circumstances, the woman and the man, wherein we would need to draw from him and that it would be insufficient in us to be able to do it. Our natural abilities would fail. Now, here's the amazing thing is that once a woman or a man turns to God because they realize that they can't live this life apart from God, and they begin to trust in him and rely upon him for the help that he gives for us to live out what he's called us to do and to be in this life, that then what happens is that the curse is overruled by the promises that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6. 
Now, not just Matthew chapter 6, I mean all the promises of God, but the the promises that he gave to us in Matthew chapter 6 are a direct answer to what the curse drives us to. Look at it. Look at Matthew chapter 6 and listen to what Jesus says there. Because it's so necessary in this day that we be reminded of this, that this is what we have because of Jesus Christ, if we know him. In verse 25 of chapter 6, listen to the red letter verses, the words spoken by Jesus. He says, Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, food, and the body more than clothing? Behold, the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father, notice that, circle that word Father, feeds them, are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, second time he uses that word, he used it in verse 25, take no thought, now he uses it again in verse 27, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? You know, which of you, by worrying, the word thought is the word anxiety, Which of you with anxiety, by being anxious about your life, can make happen something that's completely impossible for you to add to your height? You can't do it. You can't be anxious and and add height to your stature. In verse 28, and why take ye thought? Why are you anxious or worried about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, take no thought or have no anxiety saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Now notice the contrast. The Gentiles are those that don't know God. If someone doesn't know God, then they have no other choice than to be anxious about how things are going to work out in their life. But you, Jesus says, your heavenly Father, there's that word for the second time in the passage, knows that you have need of all these things. And here's the solution. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then the conclusion, verse 34. He says, take therefore no thought, or have no anxiety for tomorrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And so Jesus says five times in that passage, he tells us that we have no need to be anxious or to be worried about the conditions or the provisions of our life. That we have a father in heaven who knows the things that we have need of and that not only is he willing and able, but he is wanting and he will produce and provide the things that we need. Now, without Christ in our lives, without being reconciled to God, without putting our trust in him, We have nothing to do but to worry about tomorrow because we have absolutely no control at all over the future and what the future is going to hold. 
So will the ground produce when I go and I sow the seed into it? I have to worry about that. Is that going to happen? Is there going to be enough rain? Are the storms going to be kept at bay? Are we going to be invaded by an army that's going to come in and spoil our, our harvests and our crops? I have to worry about that if I don't know God. What unplanned event is going to frustrate my plans? I mean, I've got a forecast. I've got something that I want to see happen in the next six months, the next year, the next five years, the next 20 years on my way to retirement. And what unplanned event is going to happen, whether in the government or in the country or the economy, that's going to come in and frustrate those plans? If I don't know God, I have to worry about that. Because my vanishing point is so close to the front of my face that I can't see into tomorrow to see if some event's going to come that's going to frustrate those plans. Or what actions that someone else might do, what thing that someone else might do, might sabotage what I'm hoping will happen. Now I have to worry about not just what will happen, but I've got to worry about who's around me. Because it's a dog-eat-dog world. And it's the, the strongest survive. That's the, the, the culture that I'm living in. So if I don't know God, I've got to worry about everything because nothing is in my control. Everything is left to chance. But if I've been reconciled to God, if I recognize that God, it's beyond my resource, it's beyond my ability, I can't see far enough into the future to take care of these things. And Lord, I'm trusting you with my life and I'm making you the Lord of all that I am and all that I have. I want you to be the Lord of everything in my life. Then the promise comes in, now I have a father. And my father isn't at all moved by what might happen tomorrow. And he's not at all frustrated by the events that are unforeseen by me. And he's not at all put off or threatened by the people that don't like me and that might want to sabotage what, 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 what I might want to happen. And all of a sudden, now I'm in a place where I can rest and the promise of Jesus Christ overrules and supersedes the conditions of the curse. Now I'm still in the curse. It's still by the sweat of my brow that I have to bring forth. But I can bring forth in rest because I have a Savior and a Father who's going before me and who says that no weapon that's formed against me will prosper. And so what happens? So the economy blows out. It doesn't matter because it doesn't frustrate God's plan. So I lose my job and I lose my retirement, the thing that I was banging. It doesn't matter because God has already seen where I'm going to be at the age of retirement and he knows the things that I have need of and he's already willing to provide. And so that doesn't mean I'm completely unaffected by it and I'm not like shaken when those things happen. But it does mean that I can rest because on the other side of it all, there's something bigger than the promise of this world that's holding my life up in his hand. And so the conditions of the curse are designed that we might recognize that I can't do it myself. And that I might then turn to God and in him find a savior, a salvation, a grace, and then a relationship wherein now my life can be led. And he can work out what I can never work out for myself. If we lived in a world without a curse, no one would seek God. If everything just worked out the way we planned it and nothing ever could frustrate any of that, then we would just do it ourselves and we wouldn't even look for him. That's the condition of the curse. That's what happened. But because of the conditions that God has made along with it, sorrow, suffering, and sweat, it causes us to turn to him. So as we pick up now in verse 22, we see now concerning the reality of the conditions on earth in a post-curse world. Notice in verse 22 of chapter 3. It says that the Lord God said, Behold, 
And this, this is what we call an inter-Trinitarian conference. God is talking to himself. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit communing amongst themselves. And the Lord said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The first reality of conditions of life in a fallen world is the reality of eventual physical death. God talks amongst himself and he says that man now has the knowledge of good and evil. And so it is essential that he no longer have access to the tree of life lest he live forever in a fallen condition, in a fallen world. And so now what happens is that from this moment, Adam, who was made perfect and who was made to be eternal, he no longer has access to the thing that would sustain him eternally, and he begins the process of corruption and then death. And this is the beginning of what we all know to be eventual physical death or passing from this life. And there is a process that God has ordained, this process of birth and then corruption, and then death that started right here first thing after the fall. We all understand that. From the moment we are born, we begin to die. Isn't that encouraging <laughs> tonight? That every single one of us that sit here in these seats, that we are in the process of corruption and death in the physical aspect. But understand that that's been appointed by God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says that it is appointed once for a man to die and after this the judgment. That God has ordained that every one of us pass from this world through the event of death. Now, of course, we understand that there is a, a very small margin of exception to that. That's Enoch, Elijah, and the rapture. But everyone else came into this world through the birth canal, and is leaving this world with less than they came into it. They don't even, you don't even leave with a body <laughs> through this process of death that God has ordained that we physically die. Now, the reality of that is, first of all, that it's grace that we die, right? What if we lived forever in a fallen world? You know, we just keep, you know, dying, you know, getting old and, and we eat from the tree of life and we just experience this fallen world in an eternal state. That'd be horrible. You know, we, think, we don't think that now as we cling to life with everything we've got, you know. But it would be terrible. It's grace. But it troubles us, doesn't it? I mean, there's something about death that just bothers us. And I was thinking about this. Like, why is death so bothersome? And I think that, 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 that for me, as I think about it, you know, we come into this world and we're just like a blank slate. We're literally nothing. We know nothing. We, we're nothing. We have genes and tendencies that we inherit from our parents, but we have nothing. And then we go through this whole life, and we learn a bunch of things, and we're educated, and we're developed, and we, we wrestle, and we struggle to, to change and to grow, and we fight battles and gain victories, and we watch things happen in our lives, sometimes that take years for us to overcome. We go over these hurdles you know, we change, we have gifts and talents, we 
attain to something. We provide, you know, we're, we're productive and fruitful and we bring forth. We have relationships. We've, we learn to love people that we once hated and they learn to love us when they once hated us. And there's this whole complexity of things that happen. And then all of a sudden we just die. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. no, no, no. That was hard. Like, that wasn't an easy process to do all of that. Some of that cost blood, you know, to, to get through. And now it's just gone. Now, it's not just gone. And we understand that it, 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 for those that are saved. But to the human that's looking at this thing, we watch it. And maybe we don't think of it that way, but that's what we're feeling. We're feeling like, no, 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 no. How can it just be over? How can it just be gone? And it bothers us. It troubles us. I think the other thing that really bothers us in this thing is this whole aging process. I've come to a conclusion at my ripe young age. I hate aging. I hate it. Bitterly. You know, because things are starting to die. They're dying off while I'm still alive. You know, I don't like that. You know, I'm losing vision in one eye slowly, and I hate that. You know, it's bothering me. You know, I can't, I'm wrestling with that. And we wrestle with this whole process of aging, and we want to hold on to it and the whole thing. But it comforts me to know that God is the Lord even over death. That at the very beginning, he established it, that man would one day pass from this life onto something else. And the amazing thing about that verse, Hebrews 9.27, it says it's appointed once for a man to die. It means it's going to happen to every one of us once. But the Bible says that there is a second death. And not everyone is appointed to die twice. Because if during our life on this earth we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and our sins are forgiven, then though we may die once, as this physical body goes into corruption and ultimately into the grave, our spirit is being renewed day by day, and there's a body that awaits us in heaven that's eternal, made without hands. But for those that refuse Christ and that go through this life in rejection of him and walking after their sins, to them there's not only the one death that they were appointed to, but there is a second death, a greater death, an eternal separation from God forever. And it's not God's will that anyone ever experienced that. He didn't appoint that. He appointed it once for a man to die, and then after this, the judgment. But the truth of the matter, Psalm 103, verses 15 and 16, the glory of man is like the flower of the field. It's here. It shines, and then it's gone. And the place where it was doesn't even remember where it was. There's a, a guy who lives a couple of doors down from me that has um, started a business that uh, re relies upon sunflower seeds. And so he's growing sunflower uh, fields all around us. And it's so awesome each year to see these fields come up. And it's the most brilliant thing. People park their cars up and down the roads. They bring their cameras. They walk in these things. It's just amazing you see these sunflowers. But the most remarkable thing is for all the beauty and majesty of those beaming petals, two weeks and they are gone. They're hungover and they're black and they're dead. You know, That's us. We grow up, we blossom, we go, look at me. And then we hang over and we're dead. You know, we're gone. And it's all designed by God that we not live forever in a fallen condition. And that in our finiteness and in our weakness that we would reach out and that we'd grab a hold of him, you know. 
Not only the reality of death that was instituted here, but also the reality of paradise lost. Notice the reason that God gives at the beginning of verse 22 there. He says, when the Lord speaks to himself, he says that, that notice, he goes, that man has now become as one of us to know good and evil. And then now he says, and now because of that, so the reason for what God's going to do is because man knows good and evil. And the action associated with that reason is that now it says that the Lord sent him out of the garden and set up a cherubim with a flaming sword so that he would keep him from the way back into the garden. Now, if you notice in the language there, I love it. It says that the Lord sent him out of the garden, but then in the next verse, it says that the Lord drove him out of the garden. Did you catch that? It's almost as if God said to Adam, he was, Adam, you're going to have to leave now. And Adam kind of looked at God and he looked around and he thought, all right, I'll get around to it. <laughs> and then he said, tomorrow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and God said, no, 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 you're going now. And goes, I, just a, one more minute, maybe just five minutes. Just can I just hang out here? Just to, can I say goodbye? Can I talk? You know, no, get out. And whoa, he's serious, you know, and then God get out. And God drove him out of the garden and driven out of the garden. And then God set up a cherubim with a flaming sword and God declared in loud, bold, neon, audible letters. And he said to humankind, you're not getting back in. You're out of paradise in a fallen world where you'll till the ground and you're not getting back in. Now, here's the amazing thing is that for 6,000 years, man has been standing at that gate, looking at that cherubim, trying to figure out a way to get back into the Garden of Eden. Man tries with everything that he can to get back into the Garden. From a young age, we kind of recognize, okay, I have the knowledge of good and evil. And with the knowledge of good and evil, I can recognize that that is good and this is bad. Paradise, good. Toil, sweat, sorrow, suffering, bad. I want good because I'm smart. So I'm going to get back into the Garden of Eden, and here's how I'm going to do it. I am going to create my own Eden. I'm going to have my own paradise. And so I begin at a young age to conceive in my mind what that paradise is. Well, I've got unlimited resources, and I can kind of do what I want. And I've got freedom with my time, and of course I've got great companionship. I have a lovely spouse with me in this whole thing, who is my best friend and my comrade in all things. And we have all things together in common and we just enjoy life together. And then we possess and we have the things that we want and everything that we do, we do what we want when we want. It's just a paradise bliss. And it's on the ocean. Some of the year. You know, and we kind of paint this picture in the whole thing. And then what every human being does is that we go out, because we're Americans, you know, and we say, I can have this. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to build it, and we set forth. And so at a young age, I'm building my Eden, and I get my wife, and I say, she's the one. She's going to come with me. And I'm married for a couple of months, and I say, all right, it's not exactly what I thought it would be. But I'm not there yet, you know, and, you know, maybe she'll come around, and things will work out, and, but, 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 but we're going. We're going there. And then, you know, I get a job, and now I have some resources, and there's some money. There's some finances. There's some, some, something to go with. And it's, I didn't realize that this stuff had wings and that it flies away, and I don't have to keep a whole lot of it, you know, but I'm going somewhere. I'm on my way there. 
And then I advance and I move a little bit closer and God blesses even and, and I've got a little bit more, you know. But my health is starting to fail and I don't really have the vitality of my youth that I once did, but that's okay because I'm still going there and maybe I don't need that quite so much. And I'm giving so much to building this vision, this Eden, this paradise that I'm trying to get into in life that I've neglected my kids a little and they're not doing too good, but I can ignore that. I don't have to think about that too much right now because they're not in jail, you know. And then I keep going, and one day I stand upon everything that I ever wanted and dreamed of and built, and I look at all that it was and all that it cost me to get there, and the conclusion that every human being comes to when they stand there is that this is not what I thought it would be when I first set out. And here's the reality of it, is that there is no paradise on this earth in this life for anyone. No one is getting back into the Garden of Eden. And let me tell you the truth tonight, church. No one in this world has paradise. No one. There is no one in this world that is free, that is without care, that is not in the prison of this world, that is not affected by the effects of the fall and of the curse. Everyone is a slave and a prisoner in this planet. Period. There is no paradise. The average person like you and me were a slave to our bills, our responsibilities, and the things in our lives. The CEO is a slave to the productivity of his employees and the oversight of what it is that he sees. He can't let go of those things. He has to be consistently concerned with that. His ever waning or growing influence in whatever market or industry that he's in, he's a slave to that and he can't escape it and it keeps him up at night. The multi-gazillionaire is a slave to the money that he has earned. The money controls him. He doesn't control the money. He's a slave to the mouths that he has to feed. As the scripture says that when riches increase, so also do the mouths of those that eat from it. He's a slave to the climb that he began in his youth that got him to where he is because he didn't realize that once you get on that upward trajectory, you can't just step off of it at a certain point and say, okay, enough is enough. Because as soon as you do that, you lose it as fast as you gained it. And so now you're a slave to that escalator that you got on in your young age. And so it doesn't matter who you are in this life, what you have or what your position is. Even the Apostle Paul was a slave in this world to the calling that God had placed upon him. He was a slave to the concern that he had for the churches and for the people and for the opposition that was constantly coming at him. We live in a fallen world. And so as long as we're in this fallen world, we're subject to that fall. You say, well, this is a dismal message. Are you saying that my best efforts to build my best future are in vain? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. But listen, there is a garden. Jesus said, I am the door. And if by me anyone will come in, he will find pasture. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. And when a man or a woman comes through the gate of Jesus Christ and into a relationship with God the Father through him, he gives them their purpose and their place in this life in its proper context for its proper reason. And that person, though they feel the effects 
of the toil of this world, they operate in a joy and in a grace and as an eagle that soars with the wind underneath its wings. And with an understanding that when this life is past, what awaits me on the other side is the glory of a kingdom that will never perish. And the thing that I'm longing for deep inside, the ancestral deja vu of Adam's days in paradise, that one day will be fulfilled when I stand on that crystal shore. But until that time, I'm satisfied in Jesus Christ. And that's the birthright of every believer, every person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ, comes to God by him. So is there paradise and earthly conditions? There absolutely is not. But is there satisfaction and joy and rest for the believer in Jesus Christ? You bet there is. And it's the only source and the only place of it in this life that exists in the universe. It's given to us in the person of Christ. But there is a reality of a paradise lost that we live in. I, I always make it a point to point out to my kids the finality of everything. You know, when they get a new something, you know, I put a zip line in for them a couple of years ago in the backyard, you know, and it was the hottest thing in the world at the time. I mean, who gets to fly through the woods, you know, being thrown off a platform at 100 miles an hour? And, you know, the whole thing, it was a thrill. Now the thing is just sagging there between two trees. You know. And I point to it and I say, hey, remember? Remember what it was like? Don't forget about that. We go on a vacation and there's the hope and the, wow, the glory, we're free, we're at the beach, the ocean. And by the fourth day, I say, hey, pay attention. You see how it's getting stale? You see how it's not as exciting as it was on the first day? Everything in this life, everything in this life grows stale. It perishes but not so with him. With him, there's peace in what he has for us. Um, you know what? Let's stop. We're supposed to go through chapter 4, and, and it goes kind of quickly, but it's 5 after, and if I do it, I'm going to keep you here till 25 after, and then I'm going to go home and kick myself for a week <laughs> that, I, that I went too long, and I don't want to go too long. And I think God's spoken to us tonight. Listen, there are many, 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 many that right now in the church of Christ are going through incredible anxiety, incredible worries, incredible fears. And what God wants you to know tonight is that you have not only permission from him, but you have a command from him to take no anxious thought. Five times in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus said, Take no anxious thought. That if you know him here tonight, then you have no need to worry about what's coming tomorrow or the next month or 10 years from now or if you'll ever retire or what's going to happen, how your kid's going to get into college or who's going to pay for the braces. We have permission from him to lay that at the foot of the cross and say, Father, you know that I have need of these things. Help me today to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And let those things take care of themselves. How does that work? You say, I struggle with anxiety. And I wish it was that simple of just saying like, oh, okay, I'm better. I'm healed in the whole thing. Listen, the Bible says that our adversary, Satan, that he has a bow and an arrow and that he has fiery darts and he aims them at us. And a fiery dart is an anxious thought. And he aims it right at, right at you. And he goes, watch this one. They're going to go get the mail. Watch. Watch what happens when they get the mail. They're, watch this. Ready? And then we open up the mailbox, and he goes, and we look at it, and we see the return address. We go, no. 
I know what this is. Payment overdue collections. Ah, and the anxious thought hits us. And we have a choice at that time. Are we going to take that anxious thought? Or are we going to lay it out before the Lord and say, Lord, you know the things that I have need of. And I have a Father in heaven that clothes the, the lilies with greater splendor than Solomon that feeds. And Father, I put this before you and I choose not to take it. And up goes the shield of faith. <laughs> Quenches the fiery darts of the wicked one. We have a grace from God. He's our Father. He loves us. And I invite you tonight, if you're here, and that's you, you're worried. You're worried about what's going on in the world. You're worried about the political scene. You're worried about our country. You're worried about the divide. You're worried about the progress of Satan. I want you to know tonight that you have a heavenly Father that is sovereignly powerful and in control over all things that concern us and that concern you. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head and not one of them falls to the ground without him knowing it. And he drops nothing. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for your care for us. We rest in your promise that tonight, Lord, you keep us as the apple of your eye. And so we ask you, Lord, that as we're here, as we're sitting in your presence, we pray that you would be the Lord over everything that concerns us. We lay before you our marriages, our children, our occupations, our living conditions and situations, our cupboards, our bread and our bowl. And we surrender all those things before you, Lord. Father, tonight we want to say sorry for the way in which we worry. We want to say sorry for being self-reliant and for depending so much upon ourselves and upon our own resources. And we want you, Lord, to be God in our lives and to be our Father, our Savior and our Helper. And so, Lord, for every struggle that's represented here, every bit of anxious care, oh God, we ask that the peace of God would move into those places and guard our hearts and our mind through Jesus Christ. And so we give thanks, we trust you, and we love you. We look to you. In Jesus' name. Tonight the altar is open if you're here, and maybe you're one that you've tried to create this Eden in your mind, and you're seeking for that perfect setting, situation, and it's caused worry, it's caused fear, it's caused... You want to just lay it down before the Lord. Whatever it is, Come forward, spend some time, spend your moment, say, God, take this from me. I surrender it to you. I give you my life afresh. Renew me in your peace. Let's stand together, shall we?